want to share tonight on just a, a handful of vignettes from the crucifixion story um, of these people that I want to talk about. They, they have lessons that I believe the Lord wants to teach us in our journey, and they also speak to the human experience in a number of ways and um, are just worthy of, of, some ref of just some moments of reflection as we uh, look at, at the passion of Jesus and, and this experience that we've been reading through this week. All of our sin put Jesus to death, but the three men who's to, who were the leaders of this, uh, Pilate is within three years, all three are dead. Pilate is actually beheaded in Rome because he couldn't quell the rebellions in uh, Judea and in Jerusalem. And so he's put to death by Caesar. And then uh, I think Caiaphas, one of those two, one of them is flayed alive and the other is crucified himself. And so it's just interesting as we're looking at the trial, just a little side note, the reality of God's justice. And he says, vengeance is mine. And Jesus was meek as a lamb to the slaughter, did not raise his voice. Um, he had the opportunity to appeal to Pilate, but he was set on, on accomplishing his father's will. And here in the midst of this is this scene with Barabbas where there's this swap and Pilate makes available to the Jewish people. Do you want this man, Barabbas, to be released? And it's important to note that in Mark 15, Barabbas is there because he's a killer, he's a murderer, and he's an insurrectionist. He's a rebel. He's a very, very dangerous criminal. And so Pilate is thinking they're going to want Jesus to be released. He hasn't done anything wrong. Um, he's innocent. Of course, they're going to want to release Jesus versus a very dangerous murderer back onto the streets. But to his shock and surprise, they demand that Barabbas be released. It's really interesting. His name means in the Hebrew, Barabbas means son of the father. And, and there's Jesus who is the son of the father. Barabbas is 100% guilty. He deserves his death penalty. Jesus does not deserve the death penalty. He's 100% innocent. And so there's beautiful contrast here in this exchange. It's a prisoner exchange. And I think Barabbas represents all of us. We are all 100% guilty. Our sins are a death sentence for the wages of sin are death. And we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And we are like Barabbas. We are doomed. We are under the curse and the penalty of the law. And yet we are sons and daughters of the Heavenly Father. We're created in his image. And here's Jesus who appears on the scene as the Son of God to trade places with us. And I think the, this first vignette is just to remember how in a very literal way in the story is this, this amazing picture of God swapping places for us, the innocent son of the father taking the place of the guilty sons of, and daughters of the father and releasing us to go free. What an amazing picture of God's grace. You know, and I, obviously, I'm sure you've heard this too in, in various sermons and, and, and teachings, but, you know, when we get God's mercy, we, we are not receiving what we do deserve. And in God's grace, it's when we get something 
that we don't deserve. And here's this picture of God's amazing grace and his amazing mercy. This man is given freedom, though he doesn't deserve it. And he doesn't receive death, which he does deserve. And he's released and Jesus receives the punishment in his place. He's also a picture of apathy and indifference and man's hypocrisy to the, to the power and the message of the cross. That here's the, the reality of we don't know what happens to Barabbas. We don't have any record that he gives his life to Jesus. We're not sure he may have. I, I pray that he did. But he walks and goes his own way. There's no record of any kind of connection with Jesus in that moment. And in that way, he represents the indifference of humanity to God's revel revelation of love. And we can look around the world today and see so many sons and daughters of the Heavenly Father who are indifferent to the story of the gospel. Some of them may have even heard it before, and, and yet the, the human heart can be calloused and hardened to the, the power and the beauty of God's story. And so I think Barabbas represents this amazing grace and mercy that God has put on display, contrasted with the hardness of the human heart. And so as we, you know, journey, take this journey together to just continue to pray for the lost, that our hearts would be, uh, would be softened and that their hearts would be open to receive Jesus as uh, his mercy and his grace, and that their hearts would turn to the Son of God as the story is told. So Barabbas is our first, first scene that I felt to visit tonight as we're looking at the crucifixion. The second one I want to I want to zoom in on is uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus. And you might remember in Luke chapter 2, Mary and Joseph bring Jesus up to have him dedicated at the temple. And Simeon is there, and he has this amazing pr prophetic word over Jesus, and he's going to be the hope and consolation of Israel, and he'll be the light to the Gentile nations. And God had promised Simeon he wouldn't die until he saw Jesus and saw the Messiah. But he has, adds this little piece, and he says to Mary specifically, and, and a sword will, will actually pierce your very soul. What a sobering word. What a privilege that God gave Mary. And she's such a great example of a servant of God. You know, be it done to me according to your will. She played her part in the story. And yet, right from the very beginning, there's prophesied a devastating pain that she was going to be uh, destined to experience in her journey as Jesus' mother. And here we are, you know, 33 years later in her journey, she's watched him grow up. She's watched him become a man. She's watched him move in the miracles of God. Of course, she's the one at the wedding of Cana who uh, prompts Jesus into the first miracle of the water into wine. And she tells the servants, you do everything that my son tells you to do. And, uh, you know, so Mary is there. She's watching her son, the son of God fulfill his mission and purpose. And then she's right there at the very end as he breathes his final breaths and, and Jesus is on the cross. And she's standing there with John. Most of the other disciples have scattered at this point. And it's recorded in, in John chapter 19, verses 25 through 27. And Jesus in his dying breath, breath looks to Mary and says, 
you know, dear woman, this is your son and, and son, this is, this is your mother. And I just think as I was hearing and, and reflecting on that scene, that in, in his immense pain, Jesus has undergone the most excruciating death that is possible. That's what the, that's what doctors say is that the Romans designed the most painful death possible for a human being is crucifixion. And he's in incredible agony, not just physically, but his soul has been in anguish because he's been taking on the sins of the world. He has become sin so that mankind could be freed from that burden and that bondage. But yet here, even in his most devastating, painful realities, he's actually thinking about other people. He's thinking about his mother, who we can't imagine what Mary is going through. The injustice of what's occurring to her son, how quickly things have happened, the, the reality of someone that you love incredibly dearly and deeply, suffering that way in front of your very eyes, the trauma that she must have been undergoing. And you go back to that passage in Luke 2, uh, a sword will pierce your very soul. And yet on the cross, Jesus, seeing her sorrow, seeing her pain, reaches out in compassion to her and provides a relationship for her and brings John into her pain as a comfort to her. What a remarkable picture of God's compassion and his provision amidst the depths of our sorrows. As we go through things in life, as our souls get pierced with sorrow and grief, and we go through trauma, that Jesus isn't dispassionate or indifferent to our suffering. He sees exactly what's going on in the human heart. He says in this life, you're going to have trouble. But take, take joy because I've overcome the world. He says, I'll be with you even unto the ends of the age. His promise isn't that we have a bulletproof vest and we never get hurt. His promise is that he will be with us always. And here is a beautiful example of the Lord providing out of a place of compassion for his earthly mother, who he loves, and one of his best friends. And the tenderness of this moment is really beautiful. And in, in life, seasons change. And there, the disciples were about to go through a huge change where they're used to having Jesus with them. He's been with them every day. And Mary's been used to having her son around. Uh, Jesus for 33 years, and he, this is coming to an end, even though in three days Jesus is going to be resurrected. He's going to, be, he's going to ascend to the Heavenly Father in 40 days. He's going to be gone, and things are going to be radically different for his family and for his spiritual family. And so he's making, even in the midst of his pain and his own personal pain and suffering, he is ministering hope, and he's ministering comfort, and he's Helping, he's helping people he loves make the transitions. As things end and new things begin, the Lord is helping us through our transitions. And sometimes those transitions can be incredibly, incredibly painful. But as I was reflecting on this particular vignette in the crucifixion story, just the beauty of, of God's provision in the midst of our own sorrows and transitions was standing out to me and how he cared for his mother. The third person I want to visit in the story is, is actually the Roman centurion who's standing there and he's watching the death of Jesus 
he's on duty and he's watching, he's hearing everything that's being said. He sees the darkness come in, the earthquake. He hears Jesus breathe his last. And his confession is surely this must be the son of God. Remarkable. And it makes me think of, there's two other centurions that are mentioned. One is in Matthew 8, and you all know this story very well. This is the centurion whose servant becomes ill to the point of death, and he hears about Jesus, sends a detachment of people to invite Jesus to come into his home, and uh, Jesus is on his way, and the, and the centurion sends a messenger and just says, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come into my home. Just say the word, and my servant will be made well. And Jesus says, you know, Basically, he, he turns around and he says, there's, there's nobody, even in all of Israel, there's no faith like this man. The centurion had communicated, he's a man under authority, and he knows that all he has to do is say, go and do this or this and that, and he releases an order and it's done. And Jesus, it actually says in the Bible, Jesus was amazed. I don't know if you ever thought about that. I, I think that's a beautiful statement. Can you amaze God? I mean, apparently, apparently so. Jesus was amazed in that moment and captured it, that here's this enemy-occupying force in Israel, a Gentile, yet he understood something very, very deep and profound about the kingdom of God. So that's the second centurion that's mentioned, and then the third would be in Acts chapter 10, and we know him really well. We've talked about him before, Cornelius. And, you know, here's a guy who's praying at the time of day that Israel was praying. It says he feared the God of Israel in Acts chapter 10. And we know the story, the angel comes, tells Cornelius to fetch Peter. Peter brings the gospel to Cornelius. And so it's just interesting that there's these three soldiers, these three Gentile enemy soldiers that are mentioned in the Bible. I just was reflecting on this, and I just felt like one of the, one of the ideas that I think is being communicated here is that God is no respecter of persons. He responds to faith. He responded to the faith of the centurion who cried out to him for healing. He responded to the faith that was on display in the prayers and the giving and the alms of Cornelius. And he's responding to the faith of the centurion there at the cross. God is moving in the hearts of even Israel's enemies to reveal Jesus as the son of the living God. I also think that this is a revelation that God loves our enemies. Um, the Bible says that while we were enemies, Christ died for us. And here are, here's an example right here in the crucifixion of those that we would look at in, in natural and say, they're, they're beyond God's grace. These are our enemies, and there's no way that God would have a plan or a purpose for them. They are beyond his love because we are, in our natural frame of mind, in enmity with them. And yet in the story is evidence that God loves all. Every tribe, every tongue, he has a plan and a purpose for. God's love is for everyone. And all that matters is our confession of faith. And so the centurion is there, and his confession of faith, it says in the Bible, without faith, it's impossible to please the Lord. But after everything that this, this Roman centurion saw, he, he became convinced that Jesus was indeed the son of the living God. I love Peter. I can relate to Peter on so many levels, but uh, in, in Luke 22, we have the story where he, you know, he denies Jesus and, and Jesus is talking about someone is going to betray and, and Peter is very bold and he's like, Lord, I will die, die for you. 
And of course, down the line, he does die for Jesus as a martyr. But, you know, we know the story. Well, Jesus turns and says, Peter, before the rooster even crows three times, you're going to you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows, Peter. Satan has asked to sift you, but I have been praying for you. And when you return, when when you are restored, I want you to strengthen your brothers. Amazing. And we talk about in the betrayal story, we, we often talk about on the night that Jesus was betrayed. And we often focus on Judas, and rightfully so, he was the main betrayer. But let's not leave Peter out of the emotions of Jesus here. But this is his very best friend, or at least one of one of the three. And the guy who has been maybe arguably the boldest disciple, he's the one that walked on water. Um, Jesus had some very powerful moments with Peter. And, you know, when Peter does deny Jesus, he is weeping bitterly out of this denial. He, he just his heart is broken because he abandoned his best friend. He abandoned Jesus in the time of his need. His heart was broken. How must Jesus heart have felt at that time when even his closest friend turned and said, I never even knew that man. I, I think in one of the one of the Gospels, it says he actually curses and says, I never knew him. And I think the, one of the lessons here in Peter's life is, in this story, Jesus doesn't, he doesn't operate with a ceiling over us when we fail. He doesn't just relate to Peter based on Peter's denial and sin. He doesn't put Peter in a box called failure and leave him there. He has a vision. He knows the Father's heart for Peter. And he says, you know, Peter, when you recover, when you're re returned, go and strengthen the brothers. And when the story continues, we pick it up in John 21, and we know that story well, where, you know, Jesus, the, the guys have gone up to Galilee, and the resurrected Jesus appears on the beach. They don't recognize him at first. And he repeats a miracle, calls out, hey, put your net on the other side of the boat. And they have the huge catch again. And then the bells go off for Peter. And he's so excited. He throws off his clothes, basically just the guys are wrestling, bringing the nets in. And Peter is so excited to be with Jesus. He dives in, swims as hard as he can to get to the beach. And it's there that, that Jesus commissions him. And, you know, do you love me, Peter? Three times. Do you love me? Feed my lambs, care for my lambs, feed my sheep. And he restores Peter on the beach and launches him into his ministry as an apostle and basically, within three months, Peter goes from the depths and the and the pit of failure. And he's disqualified himself. He's gone back to fishing. He's given up on ministry, his calling. If anyone feels like nothing good can come out of my life, it's probably Peter. And yet, within three months, he is preaching the greatest sermon ever recorded in Acts chapter 2. He's the one... Under the unction of the Holy Spirit, this coarse fisherman stands up and delivers a master class sermon on the gospel of the kingdom. And the lesson for us is that God doesn't relate to us based on our failings. We experience our failings, and sometimes we're like Peter. When we sin and we fall short, we, we go back to our nets. We go back to what we know, and we say, well, God, there's nothing good's going to come out of this life. I really have screwed up. And yet that's not how God sees us. Our calling is not limited by our failures. 
And I love that Jesus says, I'm praying for you. Like Satan has asked to sift you and Jesus is right there. But I've prayed for you, Peter. I love that the thought that Jesus prays for us in the midst of our tests, our challenges. And when the enemy comes around to ask to sift us, we have a savior and a, and a Lord who's ever interceding and pleading before the father that we would come through. And when we come through the refining fire, that we would be of kingdom value, kingdom purpose for his glory, but it did eliminate his flesh. God used it to refine his character and his heart and to propel him into a greater capacity for the kingdom call that was on his life. The sixth character I want to look at is uh, Cleopas. And Cleopas's story is found in Luke 24. He is one of the two disciples. We don't know the other one that's walking along the Emmaus road and i know we didn't read that this week but it's just around the corner but i want to touch on it because they're obviously they've been in jerusalem they're walking to emmaus they are dejected disillusioned depressed they are in despair and they're talking about everything that's just happened and i love that jesus you know we these guys aren't mentioned anywhere else in the gospel story we don't know much about them i love that they're just people that were following jesus they loved him they were around they saw some of the miracles. Who knows how many they were around. They had put their hope in him. That much is clear. They were disciples. That much is clear. But these guys that, that we don't know much about from other scriptural accounts, Jesus obviously loved them very much. And he shows up to them and is walking along with them, but they don't recognize him. He just pops in on these little vignettes. And he asks them, like, he doesn't know what they're already talking about. I just love, he's like, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, well, are you the only man in Jerusalem that hasn't heard what's happened to Jesus? We thought he was the Messiah. And they're just going on and on about their disillusionment, depression. And then Jesus begins to chide them. And he says, didn't you, don't, don't you understand by faith that all of these things had to happen to the Messiah before he would enter into his glory? And he begins to reveal himself from the scriptures Moses and the prophets and the writings, and he shows himself to them, and they prevail upon him to hang out a little bit longer, and they go in for a meal, and he breaks bread, and that's when they realize that it's Jesus, and then he just disappears. Boop, he's gone. I love it. <laughs> and they say this phrase when he's gone, did our hearts not burn within us when he spoke? Did our hearts not burn? Peter, James, and John, and the apostles that write scripture that Jesus visits with, it's all of us. Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. What an encouragement that God sees us in our disillusionment, our uh, depression, our despair. Things don't happen the way that we thought they would. Stuff it get, gets broken down and our expectations get shattered. Uh, like a pot on the floor and and how do you pick up the pieces and you're processing that with your buddy and you never know the Holy Spirit just might roll up on that conversation and speak his words into our hearts and, and, and our hearts are burning again with revelation of who he is and it's about him. The scriptures are all about him. And I think the, the other lesson in this story that I was reflecting on is we need the word. We need God's word hidden in our hearts to overcome the pressures and pain of this world. Um, again, we talked about it some in the, in the picture with Mary 
We're going to go through sorrow and we're going to go through times of great confusion. And we need his word in that season. And the human temptation is to run away from God when we're going into pain. Even going all the way back to the garden, Adam and Eve, you know, they sinned and they hid. They were struggling with something. And the Lord is like, Adam, like, where are you? There's a loss of intimacy in the relationship. When we start to struggle with things, we pull away from God generally. The invitation from God throughout the scriptures always come to me. Jesus always said, come to me when you're weary and heavy laden. I'm going to give you rest. Come to me, God says in Isaiah 55. Those of you who have no money, come and buy milk and bread to, to drink and taste and see that I'm good. Come to me. Even David in the story of Bathsheba and Uriah. God confronts him about his sin and is dealing with that in David's life. And David is repenting. The Lord says to David, like, David, I've given you all these things. If that were not enough, you could have come to me. Wow. Even in, in the hardness of our human heart, when we're coveting something or we're struggling in a sin area, the Lord is still saying, David, Jed, Krista, Bernie, whoever, come to me with that struggle there's a conversation that I'd like to have with you about, about this in your life. But we, when we're struggling with things, we tend to run from God. But I think this message in, in the, in, on the Emmaus Road is that when we're going through things, that the Lord wants to come and visit with us and have a conversation with us and show, reveal himself through his word so that our hearts can gather the internal power and might through his word, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to overcome the world to overcome the pressures, to overcome the lies, to overcome the pain and the sorrow. And Jesus, of course, says that says this in, in his uh, epistles and revelation to the churches, to him who overcomes, to him who overcomes, to him who overcomes in every letter. And so we need his word burning in our hearts to overcome all that we're confronted with on a daily basis as life unfolds around us and hard things are happening left, right and center, and we have to process it. We can't put our head in the sand, and the Lord, the Lord wants us to put our heart in his hands that we would burn for him. In Matthew uh, 26, verses 40 to 45, we have the story of the Garden of Gethsemane, and I just want to touch on a couple little notes um, of be beautiful notes in the heart of Jesus throughout this story of the crucifixion. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says to the disciples, he's pleading with them to stay awake, stay awake. Three times they fall asleep. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. And he's agonizing in prayer before the father, trying to discern the father's will. And I just want to just embedded in that story is this longing in the heart of God for human companionship. And he's in, in what he's about to go through. He doesn't want to be alone. That moves me. God doesn't want to be alone. And we've talked about it in previous lessons, but I just, I'll always be coming back and touching on this to remind us, God likes to be with us. That's been the plan from the beginning. He would dwell with mankind. He would be our God. We would be his people. That's where the story ends in Revelation. And here we have another little picture of his heart. He's going to go through the hardest test. He's, he's being crushed to the point that he's sweating blood with the weight of the pressure of what's about to befall him. His friends are going to scatter. He's going to endure the, the worst physical punishment the human body could endure. 
and he is wanting his friends. He wants to be with his friends. He has a heart for human companionship. And if you remember this little phrase, I love it. Jesus said it when in relationship to the Passover to the disciples, he said, I have longed to eat this meal with you. I mean, it just blows my mind. It's so simple, yet so deep. The God who gave Passover as an ordinance to Israel and has been watching them observe that rite and that feast for 1,500 years is now physically on the earth as God in a human body. And he is about to fulfill that feast with the, the fullness of the meaning that this is my body. This, this bread is my body. This is my blood poured out for you. And he just says the simple phrase, I have longed to eat this with you. Wow. And he holds up the cup and he says, we won't drink. I will not drink of this again until I'm in my father's kingdom with you. You know, that we're going to one day be with him eating and drinking together. And in Revelation, you know, in, in the letter uh, to the Laodicean church, he says, I, behold, I'm standing at the door and I knock. And there's got all these wrong things going on in the church. And he's still saying, hey, I'm knocking out the door. If you open the door, I'm going to come in to your life and have a meal with you. Wow, that's beautiful. We have a God who likes to fellowship with humans. And he wants to be with us. He has a longing for our companionship. And I just take great encouragement when I think about who he is and all that he did for our sake, how can we say no to him when he's as beautiful as he is and has done everything he's done? And when we get that revelation going, it spurs us on. Our hearts start to burn inside of our chests. And that's the beauty of the gospel. Pastor Jed, when you talked about the story of Barabbas and how that we, we substituted holiness for corruption, God has given me the, the gift of evangelism. And oftentimes when I speak, I speak from that standpoint because I know that to reach out to the lost souls of the world, we must first show their condition. Uh, it's like going to a doctor and telling him you're sick and he does no diagnostic and begins to pump you with medication. Well, you'll be saying, well, what am I sick of? Why are you giving me this medication? What is it for? And so I believe, uh, you know, oftentimes when I, when I talk, I know my focus often kind of reveals who we are in our corruptible state. And, and the reason is that we need to know what, who we are, because if left to our, if left to our, uh, our vices, we will always choose uh, that which is ungodly and holy. And that's why we, we present an option, a perfect option, which is Christ Jesus. But you see here, the people were presented with Jesus. Jesus, symbolic of holiness, perfection, uh, um, one who can cleanse you from your current state. And Barabbas is the direct opposite of who Jesus is. And the people are given a choice to choose. And what do they choose? They choose corruption. And I think that's where, you know, it really lies when Jesus says that uh, for the light has come into the world, but people love their the darkness because their deeds are evil continuously. And so when I look at that, it, it really speaks a lot to me because when we go back to the book of Deuteronomy, we see 
Moses laying before his people, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, telling them, I have, I call heaven and earth as a witness today against you, that I have set before you. Isn't that what Pilate did? He set before the people holiness and the opposite of holiness, sinfulness, unrighteousness. I have set before you life, and Jesus is symbolic of life, and Barabbas was symbolic of death. Blessings and cursings. Jesus was the blessing. And, and sin is the curse. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. But what did the people choose? They chose death. They chose Barabbas, symbolic of death. And it's amazing because in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, we have uh, uh, Peter telling the people immediately after they began speaking in tongues, after they were baptized by the Holy Spirit, uh, the, he, he, he confronted them and, and told them, you know, uh, 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 but God knew that what would happen and has prearranged, I'm reading from the New, New Living Translation, has prearranged plan, his prearranged plan was carried out uh, when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. So here we see our condition. It's not only okay that we deny righteousness, but we want to kill it. We want to subdue it. We want to destroy it. We want to what? We want to do what Matt, uh, Romans chapter one says. We suppress uh, a truth in unrighteousness. And so when we look at that, we have to tell. I, you know, I tell myself uh, it will take the, the miracle of God to open the eyes of the people. You know, it, it only said one thing about Barabbas. In, 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 in that same it says, now Barabbas was a robber. He was a sinner. And he was symbolic of all things sin. So what do we do now in our generation? When we see that even in this generation, uh, I, I watch a lot of videos of street evangelists who go out there to preach the gospel and they are mowed down. And people are yelling, they're raising their voices over the evangelist. They just want to beat them. If, if, the, if the laws permit it, they will destroy and kill them. Like they did many of the disciples. So you really say, wow, this is the condition of the world. People really hate righteousness. And if left to our devices, we are more than likely uh, uh, to choose evil rather than good. And so, you know, let us pray for the world that as we go out there to live as witnesses for the gospel, that God will prepare the hearts and create for us a, a fertile soil that the seeds we drop in the lives of people will bear fruits in their lives so that we can bear fruit. And then the fruits that Jesus will ask us in the last day, we will say, these are the fruits we bore. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Terrence. Love you, brother. And thank you for that. Yeah, that profound reminder of the darkness, loving evil more than the light and trying to drown it out. It, it's so awesome just to sit and listen, Jed. Um, and as you and I, I think we were just talking earlier today, it's everything's really all about Jesus, right? I mean, all the stuff that um, he can do and what we can quote get from him and all that. I mean, yeah, th those are, those are side benefits, I guess, but, the beauty is just in him, just in pursuing him. And I love how you pointed out um, these characters here. You know, Barabbas, he's only relevant because of what it means in the context of Jesus. Mary, even his mother, is only relevant because of the context of Jesus. The centurion, the thief on the cross, Peter, 
Cleopas, they only matter because of what Jesus was doing. I just love how everything comes back to him. He really is everything. And I think for me, the, the moment on the cross that always uh, jumps out at me, um, and I'll just explain this to, to my 12-year-old Houston the other day uh, when we were in the car. We were talking about Jesus on the cross, and I, you know, we, we were talking about Mary. Um, and I, I said, yeah, she's a very important person. You know, and he's like, you know, some of my friends are Catholic and, you know, there's this Hail Mary stuff and, you know, this or the other. Um, and so we talked a little bit about that. Um, and he's like, what's a big deal that she gave birth to Jesus? I'm like, yeah, it is. I said, but when he was on the cross, what did he say? He looked at her and he said, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. When he was talking to John and like in that moment when he's on the cross, it's not Mary's little baby boy. This is the Messiah of the world. And, and, and there he was. He didn't call her mother. He didn't call her mom. Right? He said woman. Because in that moment on the cross, he's the hope of salvation. He's, he's, he's everything. 